I want to continue with the work we've been doing in the past few episodes, starting with episode 13, where I first mentioned Yellowbag's account of living in Des Moines, Iowa, working as a paper carrier in the early 1980s. When you start at the beginning, at a local level, and you start to ask the questions of who were some of the adults in this area at the time, what were some of the things that they said and did, you begin to find situations where you can piece together circumstantial evidence. And once in a while, there are names that get brought up more than once. So what I would like to do today is go through a few of the newspaper articles, both that I have found and that listeners have sent to me. And I want to see if we can start to debunk some of the possibly bad information that's been being put out there over the years. I'm also going to address something that several of you have asked me about, whether you were curious about my personal thoughts on it, or you just been wondering why I haven't covered it yet. And that's the theory involving Johnny's dad, John Sr. So I'm going to touch on that early on in this episode, and I think that might help in putting that whole theory to rest. So let's gather up these reports and let's go through the early timeline again. This is episode 18 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Demio. time researching the Johnny Gosh case, you've likely seen that there's been a lot of speculation over the years surrounding Johnny's dad, John Sr. We've heard several times that Johnny would always be accompanied by his dad on his paper routes, but this one time that he didn't is the morning that Johnny gets kidnapped. There's also a claim that Noreen Gosh made in her book that the Goshes would sometimes get phone calls in the middle of the night, and John would answer, and he would just say, you've got the wrong number, and he would hang up. But the night before Johnny's kidnapping, they received a call, and rather than get off the phone right away, John said, okay, okay, and then he hung up. Well, you have to realize that claim is not substantiated. That's Noreen recalling a detail years after the fact, with the intention of coming up with an explanation for everything. Again, it's the misinformation effect, and you have to remember also, she was very much being encouraged by private investigators, including Ted Gunderson. Also, even if that phone call did happen exactly as Noreen recalled, it doesn't tell us anything. If all he said was, okay, okay, well, what does that mean? We don't know who was on the other end. It could have just been someone rambling incoherently for all we know. Any explanations that we make out of it are 100% pure conjecture. And there's also a story that John Gosh had first gone to meet Paul Benassi with a Noreen lookalike, posing as Noreen, and this was allegedly kept a secret. Well, there is a picture floating around, and I believe it's in Noreen's book, of John Gosh with this lookalike. But there's an alternate explanation of what was actually happening that day. 
That's that Noreen knew about this initial meeting with Benassi, but was at a point where she was just feeling burnt out. And understandably so, after keeping up this fight for answers for nearly a decade at that point. But they knew it wouldn't look good if John went by himself to meet Benassi, so they knowingly sent a lookalike to go in her place and just kept it quiet for as long as possible. And you could ask, well, if this is the case, why didn't she just admit it? Why make John look bad like he was sneaking around? Well, that brings me back to people like Ted Gunderson. People who are former FBI, former CIA, those kinds of positions. It is their job to coerce people. It is their job to create a narrative. I think that's been one of the biggest problems in the entire Johnny Gosh case. You've got these people bullies, really, inserting themselves into the case and creating narratives and convincing the people in the case, like Noreen, that it is right and good and will provide answers for you if you go along with that narrative. And Chris Burge also told me something worth mentioning regarding Johnny's dad. Chris said that his own father was outside and he saw Johnny's dad come up the street when he first started looking for Johnny. John Gosh Sr. came up the sidewalk, cursing up a storm, assuming that Johnny was, as Chris put it, just fucking around somewhere. So when he saw Johnny's wagon sitting there, that just reinforced his first assumption. Chris explained to me that Johnny's dad was a straight shooter type. And this is evident if you watch the documentary Who Took Johnny. For example, the pictures of the boy bound and gagged, Noreen is confident that that's Johnny in those pictures. John Sr., on the other hand, says that boy doesn't look like Johnny, so it can't be him. I would say Johnny's dad is a realist. So I do hope that that explanation, along with Chris Burge's perspective, can begin to squash the idea that Johnny's own dad sold him out. So now let's start with the early reports. This is a newspaper article from the Des Moines Register by staff writer Carol Pitts, dated September 6, 1982, the day after Johnny disappeared. A West Des Moines newspaper carrier disappeared early Sunday, minutes after a friend saw him talking to a man along the youth's paper route. The carrier, John Gosh, 12, was the object of a wide-ranging search Sunday by relatives, friends, neighbors, and law enforcement officers. Police were reluctant to call the incident a kidnapping. We're just considering it, at this time, a missing person, said West Des Moines Lieutenant Ray Fiddler. But a police artist was reported busy Sunday sketching a likeness of a mystery man. The description was provided by a 15-year-old friend of Gosh, also a carrier, who told the police the man had driven past the boys three times and twice had asked directions to the same place. The 15-year-old, whose frightened mother asked that his name not be used, reported that he and Gosh had picked up their Sunday newspapers at 42nd and Ashworth Road and then had parted. Minutes later, he said, he spotted a man wearing a baseball cap near 42nd and Marcourt Lane, and the man was apparently talking to Gosh. The 15-year-old told his parents he could not determine at that distance whether it was the man from the car. He knew Gosh had his dog with him, so he listened. The dog wasn't barking. Sensing no immediate danger, the 15-year-old walked on. He didn't see his friend again. Meanwhile, one of Gosh's 37 customers waited for a paper. It was late, and that was unusual. Gosh, he said, was reliable and prompt. The customer telephoned Gosh's home at 7.45 a.m., wanting to know where his edition of the Des Moines Sunday Register was. Gosh's father, John Sr., said that he would check. He looked into his son's room, and the bed was empty. Mr. Gosh noticed something else. 
The dog had come home. We went searching and found his little red wagon, Gosh said. Every single newspaper was in his wagon. The wagon sat abandoned near the family's home in a fairly new neighborhood of large houses. Gosh delivered his son's newspapers and then telephoned police at 8.30 a.m. Lieutenant Fiddler said between 25 and 30 officers were called to search for the youth including Polk County Sheriff deputies, Iowa Highway Patrol officers, and off-duty and reserve West Des Moines police. They had no luck. Dozens of friends and neighbors joined the hunt until an afternoon rain soaked the searchers and drenched already damp spirits. Afterwards, the search resumed. We have absolutely no leads, Captain Robert Rushing said Sunday afternoon. We have no proof he was abducted. Fiddler added, We're asking that if anyone has seen the boy, they call us. The youth was wearing shorts and a t-shirt. Police first checked the 15-year-old carrier's report of the man who had driven past in a dark blue car. We're not putting any weight on it whatsoever. There's no indication that he came into contact with this boy after the papers were picked up. People who know John Gosh say that they believe he was kidnapped. Gosh has delivered newspapers in West Des Moines for almost a year. District Circulation Manager Luke Cook said he's never before not delivered his route. He's been a good carrier. He's got a good record. Good service record, good collecting record. He happens to do a good job. He's a responsible boy and has always been. That's scary, Cook said. If Gosh were trying to pull a prank, he would have delivered the newspaper's first friend, say. Cook said carriers are charged 75 cents for each paper not delivered. That would amount to $27.75 in Gosh's case. And nobody Sunday thought a prank would be worth that much to the boy. Gosh, a newspaper carrier since September 27, 1981, won an airplane ride over the Des Moines area last year in a sales contest, Cook said. Cook rode in the airplane with Gosh. Quote, he's a really nice little boy, very well-mannered, end quote. So a few things to note in this article. For one thing, it says that John Sr., after he found Johnny's wagon, went and delivered the papers and then called the police after. I know that that sounds odd and it makes John Sr. seem uncaring, not interested in the well-being of his son. But think back on what Chris said. John Sr. thought Johnny was just fucking off somewhere, like kids do sometimes. He probably figured, okay, let's just get these things delivered, and then Johnny will catch hell for it later. But then when he finished, Johnny was still nowhere to be found. So that was when the worry started to set in. Remember, he's a realistic type of guy, and kids getting abducted off the street was not something that happened in that neighborhood. Also, the 15-year-old friend mentioned in the article would have to be Mike Seskis. But the term friend is a little misleading because if you remember in my last episode when I spoke to Mike's brother Matt, he said that they possibly knew each other in passing, but they didn't hang out or anything like that. Remember, when I spoke to Chris Burge, he said that no one in the neighborhood knew Mike Seskis, which makes sense because Mike was a few years older than the boys who lived in that area, and he was already in high school. And I have to correct something that I said in my last episode. I mentioned how sunrise was at 6.45 that morning, but I shouldn't have said that it was pitch dark when Johnny first set out on his route. This error was first pointed out in the followers of Faded Out group on Facebook. And it's true, before sunrise doesn't mean complete absence of light. And Chris Burge confirmed this to me in an email. He sent me a Google Earth screenshot of 42nd and Marcourt, and he gave me what he called a mental snapshot of that morning. He said Johnny was on the sidewalk on Marcourt Lane, right in front of the Burge residence. Kevin and Mark Bozen were walking past the corner of 42nd and Marcourt by the stop sign. 
light was starting to break, so it was not totally dark, and it was probably between 6 a.m. and 6.15 at the time. So speaking of it being 6 a.m., I also received an email from Yellowbag. He was talking about something John Rossi says in Who Took Johnny. I think I told the police he looked like he was mad about something. He wasn't drunk, but he looked like he's uh, been drinking a lot of caffeine, you know, that kind of thing. Not sleepy. <laughs> well, he wasn't sleepy. He was, looked like he was, on, you know, ready to go. <laughs> That's kind of odd at 6 o'clock in the morning. He describes the man driving the Ford Fairmont as mad about something and not sleepy. So Yellowback says in his email to me that he had never heard John Rossi's description before, but that's exactly how he remembers the man who approached him six months earlier. Yellowback had posted a few months ago on the Iowa Cold Cases website that the man who approached him was very much wide awake and that that was unusual to see at 6 a.m. So after he heard Rossi's description, he was certain the man who approached him and the man who John Rossi saw were the same guy. And that's very interesting because the discrepancy with that is that Yellowbag always stated that the man who approached him was a younger guy, like in his 20s. The sketch of the man in the Ford Fairmont from the morning of Johnny's disappearance, who we've come to call Emilio, was sort of an older guy, like around 50. But you never hear John Rossi say anything about age, nor do you hear him confirm or deny that the sketch looks like the man that he saw. But I want to move on to another article. This one is from the Sioux City Journal, dated October 16th, 1984. This is two years after Johnny Gosh disappeared and two months after Eugene Martin disappeared. This is an Associated Press article and the title headline reads, Police Probe Alleged Sexual Link Between Three at Register. Des Moines, Iowa. Police are investigating evidence supplied by a private investigator that three Des Moines Register employees may have had sexual contact with some young newspaper carriers, an officer said on Monday. Investigator Sam Soda said he turned over evidence containing an admission from one newspaper employee that he masturbated a carrier. That employee, in his 30s, implicated two other workers as having sexual contact with carriers, Soda said. Although the investigator said the type of contact was unclear from the interview with the employee. Soda said he had no evidence the people involved, whom he declined to name, are linked to the disappearance of two register carriers. He said the evidence he gave authorities included a recording of the employee admitting the sexual contact. The employee, who has been told not to plan his delivery route until an internal investigation into the charges is completed, was questioned by the FBI in the disappearance of register carrier Eugene Wade Martin two months ago said Register General Counsel Barbara Mack. She said several other people were questioned in connection with the case, and there was no reason to single him out for suspicion. Des Moines Police Sergeant David Haviland said later in the day that the employee had agreed to take a polygraph test. The test indicated that the employee was not connected to Martin's disappearance. The employee was not questioned in connection with the disappearance of another Des Moines carrier, Johnny Gosh. That case is being investigated by the West Des Moines Police. So I want to jump ahead to another article, this one from the Daily Dispatch in Moline, Illinois, dated the same day as the one I just read, October 16, 1984. This is by Eric Wilson of United Press International, and the headline reads, Employee Fired, Gosh Still Upset. 
Des Moines. Iowa's largest newspaper today released the name of an employee who allegedly admitted taking advantage of seven young paper boys, but authorities said they didn't think the man was involved in the disappearance of two youths. Private investigator Sam Soda told a news conference Monday an employee of the Des Moines Register, identified by the newspaper in today's editions as Frank Socorro, 37, Des Moines, slept with as many as seven young newspaper carriers and had sexual relations with at least one of the boys. Soda said the man apparently was not involved in the abductions of paper boys Johnny Gosh, who vanished on September 5, 1982, and Eugene Martin, who disappeared August 12th. Johnny's mother, Noreen Gosh, said she thinks all of the register's 6,000 carriers should quit because parents do not know whether a circulation manager will abuse their children. And just jumping ahead a few paragraphs, Soda videotaped a two-hour interview with Sakura Saturday night. Soda and two others searched Sakura's apartment and found numerous pornographic magazines and films, as well as pictures of the paper boys, which were turned over to investigators. What jumps out to me in both of these articles is the manner in which Sam Soda conducts his investigating. Remember, he approached Noreen, inserting himself into the case. Noreen did not approach him. He heads the group, Stolen Children Are Reported Every Day, in which he would show images of child pornography at his conferences. How exactly he himself was acquiring these images is unknown to us. Also, it's important to keep in mind the first mentions of a child pornography ring were only made in the Johnny Gosh case when Sam Soda first got involved. There's nothing in the initial reports of what happened on September 5th, 1982 that indicate that this was an organized ring of any kind. Also, in the second article, where it's mentioned that Soda videotaped a two-hour interview with Frank Sakura, and then Soda, along with two others, searched Sakura's apartment and found these numerous pornographic magazines and films, is it possible that Sam Soda shook down Frank Sakura? you know, either belittled or scared him into a confession? And if so, what would be his reason for doing that? Well, that gets me back to how it is his job to create a narrative. So we have to remember that anytime we go by the reports of any private investigator on this case. There are many more newspaper articles from the first few years after Johnny disappeared, which is why I'm going to continue to share more of them with you on my next episode. I've also found out some new information that I'd like to share with you on another man, Fred, who gave piano lessons at the mall, the man that Chris Burge talked about in episode 16. Until then, this is where I'm going to let it rest for today. I do want to make an announcement right now that Faded Out is now on Patreon. This podcast has been growing exponentially, which I am thrilled about, but I need to be able to keep that momentum going. I want to travel to the places where these events happened. I want to interview people in person. And I've also had to enlist some help in my research of Johnny's case and in contacting people for interviews. So if you go to Patreon, we're at www.patreon.com slash fadedoutpodcast. Patreon is spelled P-A-T. R-E-O-N. It's a tiered system where you can contribute any amount you like, and there are different levels of rewards, which includes access to blog posts, exclusive videos, and even a monthly Q&A session. And I can assure you, your support is very appreciated as we see Johnny's case through. 
And looking towards the future, I would love to keep this podcast going, research and investigate more missing persons cold cases. So please visit that link and share it around. Also, please feel free to get in touch with me by email at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. Faded Out is also on Facebook at facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. There's also a closed group that you can request to join called Followers of Faded Out. As always, Faded Out is recorded at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting in Farmington, Connecticut. Thank you for joining me for episode 18. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time.